We have a number of scripture passages tonight. Uh, what I'm wanting to do with these scripture passages is show you the correlation in the sacraments from the Old Testament to the New Testament. So, the couple that go together, the first that we're going to read, are Genesis 17 and Colossians chapter 2. So, uh, Genesis 17 should sound familiar to you. We're going to read the first 14 verses. Pew Bible, page 22. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. I will confirm my covenant between me and you and will greatly increase your numbers. Abram fell face down and God said to him, As for me, this is my covenant with you. You'll be the father of many nations. No longer will you be called Abram. Your name will be Abraham. For I have made you a father of many nations. I'll make you very fruitful. I'll make nations of you and kings will come from you. I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for the generations to come. To be your God and the God of your descendants after you. The whole land of Canaan, where you are now an alien, I will give as an everlasting possession to you and your descendants after you, and I'll be their God. And God said to Abraham, As for you, you must keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you, for the generations to come. This is my covenant with you and your descendants after you, the covenant you are to keep. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You are to undergo circumcision, and it will be the sign of the covenant between me and you. For the generations to come, every male among you who is eight days old must be circumcised, including those born in your household or bought with money from a foreigner, those who are not your offspring. Whether born in your household or bought with your money, they, make, they must be circumcised. My covenant in your flesh is to be an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who has not been circumcised in the flesh will be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. Turning now to Colossians chapter 2, Pew Bible page 1,833. Colossians chapter 2, verses 9 through 15. For in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form, and you have been given fullness in Christ, who is the head over every power and authority. In him you were also circumcised in the putting off of the flesh or the sinful nature, not with a circumcision done by the hands of men, but but with the circumcision done by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism and raised with him through your faith in the power of God who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh or the sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the written code that was against, uh, the written code with its regulations that was against us and that stood opposed to us. He took it away, nailing it to the cross, and having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. All right, going back now to the Old Testament, Exodus chapter 12. Can we found your few Bibles on page? 104. We're going to read to verse 30. 
The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in Egypt, This month is to be for you the first month, the first month of your year. Tell the whole community of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. If any household is too small for a whole lamb, they must share one with their nearest neighbor, having taken into account the number of people there are. You are to determine the amount of lamb needed in accordance with what each person will eat. The animals you choose must be year-old males without defect, and you may take them from the sheep or the goats. Take care of them until the 14th day of the month, when all the people of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. Then they are to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and tops of the door frames of the houses where they eat the lambs. That same night, they are to eat the meat, roast it over the fire, along with bitter herbs and bread made without yeast. Do not eat the meat raw or cooked in water, but roast it over the fire, head, legs, and inner parts. Do not leave any of it till morning. If some is left till morning, you must burn it. This is how you are to eat it, with your cloak tucked into your belt, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. Eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. On that same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn, both men and animals, and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. This is a day you are to commemorate. For the generations to come, you shall celebrate it as a festival to the Lord, a lasting ordinance. For seven days you are to eat bread made without yeast. On the first day, remove the yeast from your houses. For whoever eats anything with yeast in it from the first day through the seventh must be cut off from Israel. On the first day, hold a sacred assembly, and another one on the seventh day. Do no work at all on these days, except to prepare food for everyone to eat. That is all you may do. Celebrate the feast of unleavened bread, because it was on this very day that I brought your divisions out of Egypt. Celebrate this day as a lasting ordinance for the generations to come. In the first month, you are to eat bread made without yeast from the evening of the 14th day until the evening of the 21st day. For seven days, no yeast is to be found in your houses, and whoever eats anything with yeast in it must be cut off from the community of Israel, whether he's an alien or native-born. Eat nothing made with yeast. Wherefore, wherever you live, you must eat unleavened bread. Then Moses summoned all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go at once and select the animals for your families and slaughter the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop, dip it into the blood in the basin, and put some of the blood on the top and on both sides of the doorframe. Not one of you shall go out the door of his house until morning. When the Lord goes through the land to strike down the Egyptians, he will see the blood on the top and sides of the doorframe and will pass over that doorway. And he will not permit the destroyer to enter your houses and strike you down. Obey these instructions as a lasting ordinance for you and your descendants. When you enter the land that the Lord will give you as he promised, observe this ceremony. And when your children ask you, what does this ceremony mean to you? And tell them, it is the Passover sacrifice to the Lord, who passed over the houses of the Israelites in Egypt and spared our homes when he struck down the Egyptians. Then the people bowed down and worshipped. The Israelites did just what the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on the throne to the firstborn of the prisoner who was in the dungeon, and the firstborn of all the livestock as well. Pharaoh and all his officials and all the Egyptians got up during the night and there was loud wailing in Egypt, for there was not a house without someone dead. 
Turning now to Mark chapter 14, Pew Bible, page 1579. Mark chapter 14, verse 12 through 25. There we read, On the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, when it was customary to sacrifice the Passover lamb, Jesus' disciples asked him, Where do you want us to go and make a pre- preparations for you to eat the Passover? So he sent two of his disciples, telling them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. Say to the owner of the house he enters, The teacher asks, Where is my guest room, where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large upper room, furnished and ready. Make preparations for us there. The disciples left, went into the city, and found things just as Jesus had told them. So they prepared the Passover. When evening came, Jesus arrived with the twelve. While they were reclining at the table eating, he said, I tell you the truth, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They were saddened, and one by one they said to him, Surely not I. It is one of the twelve, he replied, one who dips bread into the bowl with me. The Son of Man will go just as it is written about him. But woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. And while they were eating, Jesus took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take it, this is my body. Then he took the cup, gave thanks, and offered it to them, and they all drank from it. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many, he said to them. I tell you the truth, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day, when I drink it anew in the kingdom of God. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word, may he bless it to the hands, hearts, and minds of his people. Now, I was informed that I unfortunately skipped over Article 32 in our study of the uh, Belgic Confession. If I had known that Article 32 was there and I hadn't included it, I would have included it in my sermon from last Sunday. Um, But just so we cover all of it, I'm going to read Article 32 and 33 for us tonight and briefly mention Article 32, okay? So Article 32 in the Belgian Confession, back in your green Psalter hymnals on page 85. In the meantime, we believe, though it is useful and beneficial that those who are rulers of the church institute and establish certain ordinances among themselves for maintaining the body of the church, yet that they ought studiously to take care that they do not depart from those things which Christ, our only master, has instituted. And therefore we reject all human inventions and all laws which man would introduce into the worship of God, thereby to bind and compel the conscience in any manner whatever, Therefore, we admit only of that which tends to nourish and preserve concord and unity and to keep all men in obedience to God. For this purpose, excommunication or church discipline is requisite with all that pertains to it according to the word of God. And then Article 33 on the sacraments. We believe that our gracious God, taking account of our weakness and infirmities, has ordained the sacraments for us, thereby to seal unto us his promises and to be pledges of the goodwill and grace of God towards us and also to nourish and strengthen our faith, which he has joined to the word of the gospel, the better to present to our senses both that which he declares to us by his word and that which he works inwardly in our hearts, thereby confirming in us the salvation which he imparts to us. For they are visible signs and seals of an inward and invisible thing, 
by means whereof God works in us by the power of the Holy Spirit. Therefore the signs are not empty or meaningless so as to deceive us. For Jesus Christ is the true object presented by them, without whom they would be of no moment. Moreover, we are satisfied with the number of sacraments which Christ our Lord has instituted, which are two only, namely the sacrament of baptism and the Holy Supper of our Lord Jesus Christ. That was a lot of reading. I'm sorry about that. If I were going to um, describe to you in a way that hopefully would capture the nature of the sacraments and what the Belgic Confession is trying to communicate, I want you to think of the Bible as what God has given to us. And the Bible, you could say, is like a love letter from God. And in it, he describes the absolute enormity of his love for us in a number of unbelievable, striking stories that would far go beyond any rom-com that you could possibly see in our day and age. The shallowness of love stories today cannot even compare to the love letter that God has given to us in his word. The, the, the links and the depths by which he went to bring us to himself and redeem us, right? And let's say you open that love letter and you think to yourself, I just can't believe it. I can't believe this is true. I can't believe that what God is saying about me here, about how I rebelled and turned against him and I was his very own enemy and that he redeemed me, he came after me, he sought me, he, he saved me in Jesus Christ that God knew my name before creation ever came into being, and that God sent his son into this world to save me before I was even born or ever came to be. I can't believe it. Well, let's say God's word is like a love letter, and his sacraments... are a picture of his love letter. Sort of like, let's say, Judy goes to Florida and she sends us a postcard <laughs> with a beautiful picture of a beach with palm trees and a pier that goes out into the ocean. And she says, it's lovely here on the back of it. I'm having an enjoyable time, but it's the picture that helps us Grasp where you're at, the beauty of that place, the wonder of Florida. God's scriptures are the love letter. The sacraments are the pictures that help us to taste, to see, to grasp, to feel the wonder of his love for us and his grace for us in Jesus Christ. Right?
So that's what we're going to talk about tonight. The sacraments. Are a wonderful gift. of God's grace to us in Jesus Christ. We have uh, really just two points tonight, but the first point is Article 32 <laughs> that I accidentally skipped over. I think I was... I think what happened, Gail, was I was so excited that I was going to be preaching on the sacraments the same morning that I was going to be preaching on Genesis 17. I just couldn't believe it. And I totally skipped past Article 32. Number two, why the sacraments were given. Number three, uh, what they are. Okay? So let's just talk about Article 32 briefly. Um, and, and I'm going to try to connect it as best I can to what came before. So if you notice in Article 32 of the Belgian Confession, it says, in the meantime. What does it mean when it says, in the meantime? Okay? What it's talking about is, in the meantime, that uh, the, the ends of the world have not come, that Christ has not returned. In the meantime, that we are called to, to do all the things that the, the previous articles talked about concerning the church. Um, the marks of the true church, the marks of the false church, that everyone is bound to join themselves to the church, that there is the government of the church and its officers, the pastors, the elders, the deacons, they make up the council. How should you call these people to service, the ministers, the elders, the deacons? What should the congregation's perspective be uh, to those elders, pastors, deacons, so on and so forth? Article 32 then says, in the meantime... We believe that it's useful and beneficial to have structures, have an institution, establish ordinances about how you're going to rule and govern your church, what they would call ordinances, maybe we call bylaws um, for maintaining the body of the church. But that we should be careful not to structure our church in a way that goes beyond what Christ has taught us in his word. We can only institute in Christ's church what Christ has established and instituted. And you can hear in Article 32 a rejection of, a, of the way that the Roman Catholic Church had continued to build upon worship and its practices and add all these things and all these institutions and, and offices and, and all this glitz and glam. Guido de Bray says, we reject all human inventions, all laws, which man would introduce into the worship of God and then thereby bind the conscience of believers. We admit only that which tends to the nourishment, the preservation, the concord, and the unity um, of God, uh, of the church. And because we are uh, denying uh, and rejecting all human inventions, and because we are deciding that we are only going to do those things which are instituted by Christ and are for the flourishing of the church, um, we need the practice of church discipline, excommunication, and uh, church discipline with all that pertains to it according to the word of God. So, that's my brief note 
on Article 32. Which leads us then to the second point. Oh, not what, why. Why are the sacraments given? If you caught wind of what I was doing with um, the scripture reading, I'm trying to show you the unity of the scripture. Genesis 17 talks about the sign of the covenant in the Old Testament, circumcision. We talked a lot about that this morning, so I won't go into great detail. But when you read that, along with Colossians 2, you see that there is a spiritual reality being pointed to um, in circumcision and in baptism, which is the New Testament, New Covenant counterpart to circumcision. We see the same in the Passover. You read Exodus chapter uh, 12, the institution of the Passover, what it means, the lamb's blood that goes upon the doors, uh, the wrath of God which passes over. You, you see all this, and then you realize that Jesus is gathering his disciples in the upper room on the Passover when the lamb would be slain, and he's saying, I am the fulfillment of this. It's my body. It's my blood that the lamb of the Passover was pointing to. So there's a union. There's a unity between uh, the sacramental pictures of the Old Testament and the New Testament. The Old Covenant and the New Covenant. And they all find their fulfillment in Jesus Christ. Okay? But the question is, why were they given? Why were they given to the Old Testament people, to Abraham and his descendants? Why did they need the sign of circumcision? Why did they need the festival of unleavened bread, the Passover? Why did they need these things? Why were they given? Well, Article 33 says, We believe that our gracious God, taking account of our weakness and infirmities, Our weakness and infirmities has ordained the sacraments for us to seal unto us his promises and to be pledges of the goodwill and grace of God towards us to nourish and strengthen our faith. They were given to us to seal, to be pledges of goodwill and grace toward us, and to strengthen Our faith. Abraham needed the sign of circumcision because in the weakness and infirmity of his faith, he needed something that would give him confidence, assurance that God was going to bring about the promises that God had given to him. And so the sign of circumcision was given to him. Right? We have weaknesses and infirmities in our faith. We struggle to, to really believe the things that God has promised to us. And so, what does God give us? He gives us the sign of baptism. And it doesn't matter if you remember your baptism or not. What you do know is you had faithful parents, many of you, who presented to the church and to God you for baptism. And you can look back upon your baptism and you can say, I've been baptized 
and I'm clinging to the promises of God that were given to me in that baptism, the washing of regeneration, the washing of the blood of Jesus Christ. And when you do that, when you look upon your baptism or when the Israelites would look upon that sign of circumcision, it would seal unto them God's promises. It would remind them that God has pledged goodwill and grace toward us. And it would nourish and strengthen their faith. And it does the same for us. God not only has revealed us, revealed himself to us in his 66 book love letter. He's given us pictures of that love, which is what Article 33 says. God has taken these sacraments and he has joined them to the word of the gospel. The better to present to our senses both that which he declares to us by his word and that which he works inwardly in our hearts, thereby confirming in us the salvation which he imparts to us. Word and sacrament. Word and sacrament, they go together. You would not have the sacrament without the word. If the word did not say Jesus on the night of the Passover gathered his disciples and on that night he took bread, he broke it and he blessed it and he said, this is my body given to you. And then he passed the cup and he said, this is my blood of the new covenant spread, spilt for you. We would not have the Lord's Supper. If the scriptures did not describe for us Circumcision and the New Testament counterpart of baptism. If Peter did not stand up on Pentecost and, he, and say, what should you do in response to the preaching of the gospel message? Well, what you do in response to the preaching of the gospel message is that you repent and you be baptized. We would not have baptism. Without the word, there is no sacrament. The sacrament is the visible word. The sacrament is is the picture of the 66-book love letter. The sacrament is the visible word so that we can not only believe what is spoken to us, what has been declared to us by his word, but also God in his grace and his mercy when he sees us in the weakness and the infirmities of our faith gives us something that we can feel, taste. He not only sends us a letter in the mail, he sends us a postcard with a picture. Right? This is why the sacraments are a wonderful gift of God's grace to us in Jesus Christ. But what exactly are they? The second part of our confession talks more about what exactly they are, okay? They are visible signs 
and seals. Now, if you want to know where this language of signs and seals is coming from, it's coming from the scripture passage that we read this morning in correlation with Genesis 17, Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4, Paul asked the question, was, did Abraham receive the sign of circumcision before or after his faith was credited to him as righteousness? And the reason why this conversation is happening is because there are a number of Jewish Christians in the Roman church who are talking about their hierarchical standard in the Christian church because they're the Jews and Jesus came from the Jews, right? And Paul's saying, no, Abraham's the father of the circumcised and the uncircumcised. And he makes this by saying, uh, under what circumstances was Abraham's faith credited? Was it after he was circumcised or before? It was not after, but before. And he received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. So that's where the language of sign and seal come from, okay? And the whole concept that is being discussed here when it talks about the sign and the seal is that the sacrament is pointing to what the sign represents. Baptism represents washing, right? Washing by the blood of Jesus Christ. The uh, um, Lord's Supper points to the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. His body and blood, right? So they both point to Jesus, which is what Article 33 will end up eventually saying. But the way that these signs are sealed in the actual sacraments of the Lord's Supper or baptism is if they are joined by faith. Faith is what makes the washing of regeneration real. Faith is what makes the sacrifice of Jesus Christ upon the cross real when taking the Lord's Supper. What do I mean by that? Give me a second. Let me clarify, okay? Faith, when joined with the signs of baptism and the Lord's Supper, are what seals the promises of God in those realities, in those messages, in those visible signals of the Word of God. The Belgian Confession continues. They are visible signs and seals of an inward and invisible thing. So this is an inward and invisible thing. That's talking about faith. What I mean by faith making what is happening in baptism and the Lord's Supper real is Sort of the same way we talk about what actually happens in salvation. For instance, we know that Jesus lived 2,000 years ago. That his life 
was a perfect, sinless life. That his going to the cross was him having the wrath of God for our sins poured out upon us. Or poured out upon him instead of us. His being raised to life three days later is also our resurrection. Our bringing of newness of life. His being ascended to sit at the right hand of the Father is pointing to our ultimate destiny. To be in the same place as him in the the throne room of his Father. Uh, The question is, how does what happened 2,000 years ago connect with us here today? How does what happened in history subjectively interact with my life? And it's through faith. The same thing can be said about these signs that are pointing to the historical realities of what happened. Christ really did gather with his disciples and receive the Lord's Supper. The Holy Spirit really was poured out at Pentecost. How do those things reach from that time in history to be meaningful and real for us? And the sign of baptism and the sign of the Lord's Supper, it's through faith. They are visible signs and seals of an inward and invisible thing by means whereof God works in us by the power of the Holy Spirit. Therefore, the signs are not empty. Not meaningless. So as to deceive us because faith in Jesus Christ. Because Jesus Christ is the true object presented by them, without whom they would be of no moment. Without the perfect work of Jesus Christ, there would be no power in baptism. There would be nothing in the Lord's Supper. But because of the perfect work of Jesus Christ, and because the God in his grace and his mercy has decided to join his word with the visible signs of baptism and the Lord's Supper. And, and because these things point to the, their reality in Jesus, and by faith we participate in those realities, they are not empty, meaningless signs and seals. They are the very way which God strengthens us and our faith. Comes to us in our weakness and infirmities. Reminds us of his goodwill and his grace toward us. And seals unto us his promises. The final note that uh, the Belgian Confession says, in contrast to the Roman Catholic Church, which I think even to this day has nine sacraments, something like that. I don't know. The list could always be growing. We're satisfied with the number of sacraments our Christ, our Lord, has instituted, namely two, sacrament of baptism and the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. 
So God has written us a love letter. A wonderful story about his pursuit of his people that when you read it, it's hard to believe. It's hard to believe because we're still in this world that is under the curse. We're still in this world in our bodies of weakness, in these jars of clay. And, and sometimes we struggle. We do. And it's okay to be honest about that. The psalmist is honest about that. It's okay for us to have our very own echoes of the words of Jesus Christ when he was on the cross and say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's okay to experience those kinds of feelings and those kinds of emotions and those kinds of struggles. But it's in those moments that I want you to know that God, God knew you would feel like that. God has given you permission to feel like that sometimes. And in his abundance of grace and his mercy, he has not only given you a revelation of himself, which you can read, which you can hear proclaimed to you, but even when in the weakness of your faith and your many infirmities, You need something more, something to accompany the word, a visible expression of the word itself. He's given you bread, fruit of the vine. He's given you sprinkling of water so that you would know That God is gracious toward you, full of goodwill toward you. And that God knew you would have those weaknesses and infirmities, and God desired to give you something that would strengthen your faith. He knew that you would pick up his word and read it and say, I cannot believe that there is a God who loves me like this. And so he'd also give you a picture. So you knew that it really did happen. And those pictures are baptism and the Lord's Supper. Amen. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the sacraments. We thank you that you, you saw our frame. You knew that we were dust. And that you took into account our weakness and our infirmities. And you've given us baptism in the Lord's Supper. To seal unto us your promises. To be pledges of the goodwill and grace that you have toward us. And to nourish and strengthen our faith. You've done this so that the word of the gospel could be better presented to our senses. So that both what you declare by your word and that which you work inwardly in our hearts could be confirmed in us. And the salvation which you impart to us could be seen not only in the word proclaimed, but also in the word made visible in the, wa in the waters of baptism and in the elements of the Lord's Supper. Lord, these are visible signs and seals of the inward and visible thing that you've done in us. 
by the Holy Spirit. Where you work in us by the power of the Holy Spirit, those things which are signified to us in baptism and the Lord's Supper. Therefore, we believe, Lord, that these signs are not empty and meaningless. They do not deceive us because in them the true object being presented by them is the perfect and completed work of Jesus Christ, our Savior, our Lord, and the one in whom we find all our comfort and hope in this life. So we pray, Lord, that we would not take for granted these things that you've given us, these sacraments that you've given to us as a wonderful gift of your grace to us in Jesus Christ. May we take them for all that they have for us when they are accompanied by the word and the spirit These sacraments strengthen us and nourish us in our faith until the day comes when what is signified in these signs, sealed to us in the promises of God, come to full fruition in the coming of Jesus Christ, the ushering of the new heavens and the new earth, the throwing away of the old bodies and the raising the life of the immortal. It's in Christ we ask all these things and pray that you'd answer them for your sake. It's in his name we pray. Amen.